Bibles, please uh, turn to Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. That would be Matthew 27, verses 45 through 56. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And if you would stand, you're already there. You guys are on it. We do that because uh, we want to show high respect for God's word and for the reading of it. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing here, there, were standing there when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking his sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and, and, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were, hap- that were happening, they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, we are just overwhelmed with the great work that you did uh, when you went to that cross and bore our sins. Forgive us, Father, when we think lightly of your willing crucifixion, your uh, going to the cross in our place making him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh God, you demonstrate your own love towards us in that while you were yet sinners, you died for us. God, let that ever be present in our thinking. Let us never think lightly of what you did on that cross. You bore the most humiliating, the most grotesque death that man could uh, bear, and yet you did it for us, Father. So when we live our lives and we, we speak the gospel, help us to do it with a great intensity, with an intensity that comes from our love for you, our love for your saving work, and God, a love for you being glorified. We, uh, we just uh, pray thanks now. We pray thanks for all eternity for what you've done and will continue to do in the lives of your church. We look with expectance to you. We give you much praise. So use this this morning to continue to glorify you in the preaching of your word, and we'll give you much praise in your holy name. Amen.
Well, we've, as we've noted, this last few weeks, the Lord has kind of juxtaposed for us and providentially celebrating Jesus' birth and his death. The last time we were in Matthew 27 was a couple weeks ago, and we left Jesus crucified, surrounded by those mocking him. And why was he crucified? Why were people mocking him? It's all, uh, Matthew has focused for us up to our passage this morning. He's shown that Jesus is on the cross because of his claim to be the king, to be the king of the Jews, to be not only the king of the Jews, the, the Christ, the one who is to uh, be from the line of David to rule over Israel and over the whole world. He's claimed to be the son of God. Really, as we've seen through the gospel, God the Son incarnate. For all of these things, he is on the cross. You can see, you can see how people highlight this, even in the mockers that we saw at the very end of the last passage. Look at verse 39 and 27. And those who passed by, the cross is in a very public place, out in the open. It's designed to be that as a deterrent. Those who passed by derided and wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus is on the cross because he is claimed to be the true king, because he is claimed to be the divine Messiah, and he is being mocked as such. Like we've said all along through the marching ahead to the cross and now at the cross, uh, Matthew, through this whole last while, has been at pains to show for his Jewish audience that Far from Jesus' crucifixion actually disqualifying him from being the Messiah, it actually shows that he is the Messiah. Far from disqualifying him to be the Son of God, it shows that he is the Son of God. And that continues into today as we see his death. A big idea for the passage this morning as we walk through it is this. Worship Jesus, proven to be the Son of God at his death. Worship Jesus, proven to be the Son of God at his death. Let's take a look at Jesus' death in 45 through 50. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land, over all the land, until the ninth hour. Now, this is just the way that time was reckoned. Uh, time was reckoned from 6 a.m., that was hour zero, and sixth hour would have been noon, or about noon, and the ninth hour would have been about three. Now, according to Mark, Jesus has actually been on the cross since about 9 a.m., so he's already been on the cross about three hours, encompassing what we've already seen in the previous section. But now Matthew highlights the time period, the three hours from noon to 3 p.m., and what he says is, is there's darkness over all the land. Uh, the idea is, is that somehow 
in the vicinity of the cross, in the vicinity of Jerusalem, in the vicinity of Judea, there is darkness. There is darkness. Now, why does he highlight that? What is the significance of there being darkness? Well, to understand that, you would, could look back into the Old Testament, and you would find that when there is darkness, especially in, as Matthew clearly sees it here, a supernatural darkness, that is associated with God's presence. There are several passages which talk about God coming in thick darkness. So this darkness uh, signals that God is present, but present in a very particular sort of way. Uh, When God is described as coming in darkness, there is kind of this uh, dual reality of, yes, him coming to save, but also coming to judge. And that is the context here, that God is present. The Father is present to judge. Who is he judging? What we understand is if God is coming to judge, we would, un- we would expect, especially as we look through the Old Testament and several passages like, say, Amos 8-9, this idea where God is coming to judge people. He's coming to judge those who have sinned against him, who have rebelled against his law. That's the picture in places like Amos 8, 9, and even back into Deuteronomy, that God is coming and he's going to come and judge even his people, even his professing people Israel. uh, He's going to judge them because they have failed to keep his law. They failed to keep the covenant that he made with them. And so God comes in darkness in in what what is known as the day of the Lord, that he's going to come in darkness and gloom to judge. But, but what we understand here is though God is present here at this scene in darkness to judge sin, to curse sin, we understand from what, how Jesus has prepped his, and Matthew has prepped his audience for the cross, that though God is there to judge human sin, it is actually targeted at Jesus. You see, uh, in Deuteronomy, it talks about how a man who is hung on, hung on a tree is cursed by God. It's not cursed by God, and therefore he's hung on a tree. He's hung on a tree, and therefore cursed by God. Jesus is hung on a tree. Jesus is hung on a cross, and he is, in these three hours, with the pres- God's presence in darkness, drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. The cup that Jesus anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cup, he said, if there's any other way, I'd like to avoid this. And yet he, he did. So we are to understand with this darkness over three hours that Jesus is the target of the Father's anger against and curse against human sin. Now, there's, as we will see, there, it's very clear the Father is not displeased with Jesus, nor is the Father displeased with what Jesus is doing. 
We go back to Gethsemane again. It is the Father's plan that Jesus do this. So the Son is not the target of the Father's presence of judgment because of any wrongdoing that he has done. Jesus is perfectly righteous, has never sinned, and yet he is the target of the Father's wrath because he is the substitute for his people. Matthew 1.21, we looked at it last week, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Last Supper, Jesus says that here's, my, uh, here's the cup that represents my blood for the forgiveness of sins. The Son of Man came, uh, back in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the ransoming action where Jesus is absorbing the Father's wrath for human sin. He has become a curse with the Father present in judgment for human sin. And Matthew portrays this darkness, this presence happening over a course of three hours. He says very specifically from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Well, the way he frames it, that means that, well, something, something happens at the ninth hour, doesn't it? He's saying from, uh, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness, which Im- sort of implies that sometime around the ninth hour, the darkness stops. So something kind of crescendos at the ninth hour, and he shows us what that is in the next verse. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, we read this question, and on the surface, this, this seems like God has forsaken Jesus, or like God has, um, like Jesus doesn't know why God has forsaken him, for what purpose that God has forsaken him. But Jesus knows the answer to this question. Jesus already knows the answer to this question. It's been very clear as he's gone to the cross um, why he's going. He knows, in in full knowledge, he knows that this moment was coming. You could look back at Matthew 20, 18 through 19, where Jesus relays to his disciples that he is going to be crucified with the attendant mocking uh, by those around them, uh, those who are surrounding him. And he looks ahead even to his resurrection. So Jesus knows he's going to have to go through this. More than that, uh, as we've already alluded to in, say, Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or the Last Supper, uh, this, uh, this cup is the um, blood, my blood, for the forgiveness of sins. So he knows and has anticipated this, or even more, like I've already said, in Gethsemane, in, uh, the, he anticipates drinking the Father's wrath. He anticipates being the target of the Father's justice on behalf of others. He has anticipated this. Jesus knows the answer to this question. So why is he asking it? Why is he articulating it? Why is he doing so loudly? Uh, um, couldn't he just do this silently? Well, the answer to those questions, it kind of asking those questions kind of highlights that Jesus isn't just citing this, isn't just saying this 
for a, a, a surfacey sort of reason that we could give. In fact, what we come to find in conjunction with what we've already seen in the crucifixion scene, Jesus is quoting scripture. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. The last time we were in Matthew 27, uh, I read Psalm 22, and I'm going to do it again because uh, Matthew and Jesus understand that what is happening at the cross is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. So let's go ahead and go back there. And like I said, I'm, it's a longer psalm, but I am going to read it to remind you of how, and to explain how, Matthew and Jesus are thinking of Jesus' death. So we'll go back to Psalm 22. A Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus is quoting. But we go on, because as we understand, when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they quote it contextually. In other words, they're not just leaning on that one verse, they're leaning on the whole psalm. And Jesus, I would argue, is thinking about the whole psalm as he is on the cross. So let's keep reading the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid." Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Now I quote all of that because Matthew already in the last section and in this section has very clearly shown, you heard some of those phrases, those wagging their heads, those saying, well, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Matthew and Jesus have already shown in the last section that Jesus is that speaker, or at least he is applying what the speaker says in Psalm 22 to himself. And now Jesus on the cross is saying, I'm that person. He starts with the cry of Psalm 22:1 because he's saying, this is me. This is me. And so now we are able to answer a couple key questions. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can ask a question, well, in what sense was Jesus forsaken? Well, we can answer that question now because we can look at Psalm 22 and we can see Jesus is forsaken not by God, but by all of the, uh, the, the, he, he articulates forsakenness in Psalm 22 as being mocked, being attacked. And yes, God hasn't shown up yet to rescue him. And yet by the end of the Psalm, he does. You see, as you go through that Psalm, the speaker never loses faith in God. He never, though he is in dire straits, he is always articulating faith in God. He expects to be heard by God and is ultimately answered by God. So what does this cry mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Essentially, the cry becomes in Psalm 22, 1, God, it's time for you to show up. It's time for you to rescue me. I trust you that you're going to vindicate me and that you're going to rescue me. And that's what exactly happens by the end of the psalm. And so if Jesus is quoting this, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that become? It becomes functionally not a cry of despair. Jesus is not in despair on the cross. It is not a cry of break in relationship with God. There was never once a moment where the father and the son broke relationship. It's impossible. The Trinity would cease to exist, which is an impossibility. What is it? It is a cry of faith. It is a cry that recognizes that, yes, though everything around me, though I am abandoned, though I am ashamed, though people are mocking me, though they're killing me, I'm crying out to God to act. I trust that he will act, and by the end of the psalm, he will which is exactly what happens with Jesus as well. uh, well. So why does Jesus say this? What is it? Functionally, it becomes a public cry. After experiencing the darkness of the presence of God's wrath for three hours, it becomes a public cry by Jesus for God to act, And at the same time, he is shouting this very loudly and very publicly to put in the minds of his listeners, Psalm 22. He's saying even to those who are around the cross, even those who are are crucifying him, are mocking him. If you want to understand what's going on at the cross at this exact moment, think of Psalm 22. 
Jesus expects to be vindicated. Jesus expects for God to act. Now, what do the hearers do? They hear this, this cry, Eli, Eli, Elama Sabachthani, just Aramaic, which is what Jesus was speaking. What do the, what do the hearers do? Verse 47. Now, some of the bystanders, let's remember for a second, who are the bystanders? Uh, Matthew has already shown us in the previous section who the bystanders are. They're the religious leaders. They're Jews. Yes, there's this, the, the Roman soldiers that are there, and well, they're, they're standing by. But especially as these bystanders start talking about Elijah, we are to understand that the bystanders here are Jewish. They are um, probably primarily still the religious leaders, maybe a few others who are, are watching. What do they do? And some of the bystanders hearing, hearing Jesus cry saying, said, this man is calling Elijah. Now, you can kind of understand a little bit why, why they would move, to, uh, at least uh, in what was said, to Elijah. Eli, Eli, kind of sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? So at least they understand, they misunderstand what Jesus is saying, they miss it, and they tie in and say, oh, he's invoking Elijah. Now, catch that, they understand, this confirms what we've already said, they understand Jesus' cry as a call for rescue, not a cry of despair, a call for rescue. They just misunderstand who it is. In this case, they understand that, oh, Elijah's gonna, he's calling on Elijah, come rescue him from the cross, to rescue him from this mocking, to rescue him from our, our efforts to crucify him. Now, why in the world would they think that? Like, what is it about Elijah that they would tend to think that? Well, if you remember the Old Testament story about Elijah, Elijah is one of two exceptions in the whole of the Old Testament that didn't die. First was Enoch back in Genesis 5. Um, but here we've got Elijah, and Elijah gets taken up directly to heaven without dying. And so there's some evidence external to the Bible that um, people in Jesus' time kind of thought that, well, uh, because Elijah didn't die, uh, maybe he can, he can kind of listen on behalf of those who are suffering and rescue them. And so that seems to be their conception in this case. He's calling Elijah. And then someone goes, verse 48, one of them, one of the bystanders goes at once, ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine. That's vinegary wine. So you're to think like wine vinegar, wine vinegar. And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Now, why in the world would that person do that? Obviously, it's in response to thinking that Elijah's uh, uh, that Jesus is calling Elijah, but why would he do this? Let's, let's start with the, the vinegar, wine vinegar thing. Wine vinegar was actually used to quench thirst. It was a normal thing that, or, an, uh, you know, you can kind of think of cheap wine or wine vinegar. It would actually be kind of a bracing drink, and it would actually quench thirst. So the design behind this is actually to kind of reinvigorate Jesus. Now, you might think, well, that seems like an awfully compassionate thing to do, well, not really, because what is actually happening? The, the person goes and runs because they expect that Jesus is near death, and he is. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to, pro, uh, this person's trying to prolong his suffering, kind of reinvigorate him, wake him up, and so that they can mock him. They don't believe Elijah's going to come. Look at what happens in verse 49. And the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. So this fellow goes, runs, gets some vinegar wine, 
uh, puts it on a sponge, gives it to Jesus on the cross to kind of invigorate him. Once he's done that a little bit, the others are like, okay, you've done enough. Um, come back. Let's take a step back and let's see if Elijah actually comes, which is total mock, mocking. So this is preservation uh, through this sour wine to try to mock Jesus further. They don't actually believe Elijah's going to come. They believe this guy is cursed by God. They're just mocking him the further. But even in that action, they yet again fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 69, 21, which we talked about the last time we were in Matthew, uh, is, is very similar to Psalm 22 in many respects. Talks about a righteous sufferer who is in a life-threatening situation. And one of the things that is said in Psalm 69, 21 is that they give the sufferer gall, bitter food, or bitter substance to eat, and sour wine to drink. So even in this final act of mocking Jesus, he is still fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And it's this moment, verse 50, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up the Spirit. This cry is inarticulate. It, it could be that he said something, but Matthew doesn't record it. Other Gospels, you know, accentuate different aspects of it. But at least for Matthew, the last thing that Jesus says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, as I've already argued, is a cry of God to come and to rescue, to intervene, to vindicate. A cry of faith. But here we see Jesus dies. Now, the way that Matthew records Jesus as dying is very peculiar. Uh, your translation probably says something like, he yielded up his spirit, or he breathed his last, or something like that. But literally, what it says is, Jesus let go or released the spirit. There's no his there. There's an article. Uh, but it, it literally says, he let go the spirit. Now, obviously, Matthew is referring to Jesus dying. He's referring to him expiring as a human, giving his last breath. But the way he says it is, he's trying to draw you into another thought. Usually in the book of Matthew, when Matthew refers to the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Remember at Jesus' baptism, it's kind of interesting and instructive to compare the baptism of Jesus with his death. In some ways, they're kind of opposite pictures. If you think back to the baptism, what happens? The heavens are opened. God is there. The Father is there. The Father speaks. This is my beloved Son with whom I well pleased. And who shows up? The Spirit comes and rests upon Jesus and continues to rest upon Jesus throughout his ministry and up to this point. Now, the Father is present. We already argued that. The darkness is the Father's presence, a presence of judgment. And here, the way Matthew is phrasing it, he is talking about Jesus dying and his breath coming out, but he's using a double entendre. He's saying, uh, Jesus released the Spirit. And what Matthew's going to do with that is draw his reader's attention to the reality that what Jesus was doing on the cross was ratifying the new covenant. Jesus himself said this in, in the Last Supper, that here's, uh, uh, um, this, this bread is my body, this cup is the blood of the covenant. 
And as Jesus dies, he is ratifying the new covenant. Well, what is the new covenant? The new covenant is the reality that not just some people within uh, in Israel, not just some people like a remnant within God's people, but all of God's people are going to know God in a true way. You see, in the Old Testament Israel, there was you could be part of Israel, but not know God. But the new covenant in Jeremiah promises that everyone in God's people is going to know God. Not only that, but God is going to cause this new people to walk in his laws, to be obedient. How is he going to do that? Well, he's going to put his spirit inside people to cause them to walk in God's ways. That's what Ezekiel 36 talks about. When Jesus dies, he ratifies, he begins, he initiates the new covenant. And Matthew is tipping his readers off to that reality, even in expressing this idea, Jesus releases the Spirit. And we're going to see that tie-in even with more with the results of what happens with Jesus' death. Let's go ahead and see that in verses 51 through 53. Jesus has died, but what are the effects? What are the immediate effects of Jesus' death? And there are many. Look at verse 51. And behold, which is just drawing your attention, is just grabbing your attention, saying, look, reader, look what happened. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what is this curtain or veil? Um, it, this is the veil that separates the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence in its most concentrated form on earth dwelt. In the Holy of Holies, there's a, in the, uh, but most of the year that's closed off, and it's closed off by a curtain. Now, if you look back to the Old Testament designs for the tabernacle, the temple, on that curtain were two cherubim to remind people of the cherubim guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. If you go back to Genesis, uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, you remember they are expelled from the garden. They are expelled from dwelling in God's presence. And there is cherubim who guard the way to, to life, to dwelling in God's presence. And that reality gets mimicked or modeled in the tabernacle structure to where the Holy of Holies represents here is, here is God's life. Here's God's presence. This is what humans were created to, to enjoy was God's presence and with him. And that life-giving, abundant presence, but it's guarded, it's blocked. And only a high priest could go in once a year. And even then, they had to do a bunch of incense to kind of cover God's presence so that the priest wouldn't see God's presence and be killed. So that gets mimicked. This curtain is symbolizing that barrier. Now, the curtain in Jesus' day, in Herod's temple, it's about 60 feet tall. 30 feet wide, and it's about a hand breadth and thickness. So you take the width between your thumb and your pinky, it's about that thick. So this is not like cheap Muslim whatever. This is, this is a barrier. This is blocking people, priests, the whole, most holy people on earth. It's blocking them from coming into God's presence. And 60 feet from top to bottom ripped down the middle. Why? Well, because of a couple things. One, I've already alluded to, 
symbolism since being expelled from the Garden of Eden through the tabernacles and the temples of the Old Testament. God is saying this. This is not just, oh, this happened to, this just so happened. This isn't an accident. This is a supernatural act by God who has been present. And what is God saying? What Jesus just did on the cross opened the way into dwelling into God's presence. Not just once a year, but looking ahead to the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring dwelling in God's presence in an ongoing way. It also symbolizes another thing. One of the themes in Matthew has been that Jesus, as the Davidic king, the Davidic king was to build the temple. And Jesus has um, said, back in Matthew 16, he says, I'm going to build my, and we would expect him to say, temple, because he's the Davidic king, he's the Christ, And he says, I'm going to build my assembly. Because one of the realities that Matthew points to, that Jesus points to, is that the temple in Jerusalem, its time is over. He has said this even in many of the things he said in his last address. The time of that temple is over. That doesn't mean the temple's gone. It means the temple has transitioned. And what does it transition to? Well, the rest of the New Testament bears this out, even as Matthew sets up for it and Jesus sets up for it. The temple is now the church, his people, living stones gathering together where God's presence dwells, whether we're talking ultimately in the future, the universal church when it's gathered, or right now, the local church. And so what is happening through this veil being rent, it's not only a signal that in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to be able to dwell in God's presence unimpeded, but it also is illustrating there's a transition happening in temple. So that's the first thing that's the immediate result of Jesus' death, that what Jesus has accomplished on the cross has paved the way for people to dwell in God's presence. Now, let's just pause there for a minute and think. That might not sound all that good to you. You know, um, maybe you've thought about the gospel or what, you know, what, what the Bible is all about as well. Uh, yeah, I, I want to avoid hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to experience God's judgment. Well, that's, that's true. God um, will judge those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who have not repented and placed their faith in Christ. You will die and you will experience God's judgment forever without rest. But if your goal is just to escape that reality, which is a horrific reality, and it is real, and God uses it to warn people, but God doesn't just leave people there. He doesn't just say, all right, um, I've done all this so you can escape hell. That's only half of what salvation is. If, if God just saved us and then said, bye-bye, see you, have a nice life, do whatever you want, I'm going to go over here now, that would be Horrific. Because what you and I were designed to and for is to dwell in God's presence. That's how it began. That's how God designed us. We will not be complete. We will not be fulfilled until we dwell basking in God's glory, enjoying who he is and all of who he is for all eternity. And that is exactly what is being symbolized here at the cross. 
is that not only did Jesus die to forgive people, his, his people, their sins, which is absolutely true. And Jesus has said it, but why, what's the end goal? Forgiveness is not the end goal. The justification is not the end goal. God's presence and dwelling with him in his abundant life for all eternity. That's the end goal. That's the good of the good news that we can dwell with God and enjoy God forever. And if that's not what you're looking forward to, my friends, I think you may be an idolater. If you don't love God, if you have no desire to dwell in God's presence, then even though you may have all the trappings of external religion, even if you might have all the trappings of Christianity, then you're an idolater. Because what Jesus did is t- did in his life and death was to bring us to himself, to bring us to the Father, which is what is symbolized with the tearing of the veil. But there's more. Look back at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. So again, we've got a marker of God's supernatural presence. The earth is shaking. The rocks are splitting which again is another just kind of motif. And you look back in the Old Testament, that's a signal of God's presence. God is there. The Father is there. And he is responding. The Father is responding to Jesus' cry on the cross. He's answering it. He's showing that he's accepting it. Verse 52, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What is this? Matthew is showing that on the, basically at the same moment that Jesus dies, um, some people who are, let's just call them Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, um, that they are raised from the dead. Now, the earth shaking and the, you know, the, the, the rocks splitting, that probably facilitated the physical opening of some of these tombs. But these people are alive again. They died. They, they, their bodies are reanimated. They rise from the dead. What is that showing? Um, Matthew is showing, Jesus is showing, the Father is showing that Jesus' death purchased resurrection purchased life back from the dead. Now, these people are going to sit in their tombs or hang around. They're not going to go around and appear to anyone because they're not going to upstage Jesus. He's going to rise again, says that, and Jesus has already anticipated that. We know that's going to happen. They're going to wait until after he rises again to come into the city, but this is witness to those in Jerusalem that Jesus' death accomplished resurrection. And here's where we get another Old Testament link. Go back to Ezekiel 37 in your Bible. Remember I mentioned earlier the idea of the new covenant. It's mentioned in Jeremiah. It is mentioned in Ezekiel, especially especially starting in Ezekiel 36. But then in those subsequent chapters, and including Ezekiel 37, there's this reality of the new covenant. And what you need to understand is that in context, um, Israel has gone into exile. They're away from God's presence. And they have disobeyed his law. They are expelled from the land. They are away from God's presence. God's presence is a huge uh, theme in Ezekiel. 
And the question is, well, how is Israel going to get back? How are they going to get back to God's presence? How is God going to fulfill all his promises for Israel and for the rest of the world? And the answer in Ezekiel and the answer in the rest of the prophets is the new covenant. And in connection with that idea, we get Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, that's Ezekiel, and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh. Now, do you remember when Jesus died, what happened? He released the spirit. Keep that in mind. And he brought me out into the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he said, uh, uh, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord Yahweh, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to these bones, behold, I will cause breath, which is the same word for spirit. I will cause spirit, you could say it that way, to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. Again, same word for spirit, breath, spirit. And you shall live and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath or spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the spirit, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, That is what is being alluded to in Matthew. What Jesus has accomplished, he has ratified the new covenant. He has released the spirit. He has purchased the reality of the spirit coming and indwelling his people and raising them up. The people of Israel first and foremost, and then by extension, all the nations of the world. Now what happened on what we see in Matthew is just a small inkling of that. It's not the full picture that happened in Ezekiel 37, but it's a teaser of coming attractions. Uh, the, the father and Matthew are showing that Jesus' death purchased resurrection. Jesus' death purchased not only a resurrection, but a renewal of spirit in individual lives. It's, he's saying that what Jesus' death did, even at the hands of Israel, even as he's being crucified at the hands of Israel, his death purchased the renewal of Israel and the renewal of the rest of the nations. This is everything. That is what is the immediate results of 
Jesus' death. The way into God is secured, and resurrection, life from the dead, is secured. What is mankind's greatest problem? The mankind's greatest problem is that we all die. Every one of you in this room, unless the Lord comes back first, is going to die. Life's going to stop. You're not going to have any more chances. You're not going to have any more ability to accomplish anything. All of your legacy will pass away. No one's going to remember you. It's the truth. But this, this solves mankind's greatest problem. Jesus' death in place of his people, in place of those who trust in him, grants resurrection, and not just resurrection to go have a nice eternity, do whatever you want, but have an eternity enjoying God's presence forever. That is what Jesus' death accomplished. Now, as the passage closes up, we see some responses. So we see Jesus' death, we see the immediate results of that, and then there's some responses and some witnesses. Let's look at the soldier's response to Jesus' death in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, so these are Roman soldiers, at least they're, um, they're, they're, they're quite possibly peoples that are from the, the nations around Israel, but they're under the auspices of Rome. They're the soldiers. They're the Gentiles, the nations. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, kind of all of these events, these supernatural events and signs, probably didn't see the tearing of the, the, the veil that's inside the temple. They probably didn't necessarily see these people raised up, but they saw the earthquake. They saw the darkness. They saw all of these things. And what do the soldiers, what does the detachment say? They were filled with awe. Actually, it's the idea that they were greatly afraid. It's not so much awe. They are afraid. Greatly afraid. Why? Because they're crucifying this guy, and there's this supernatural darkness, and there's this, the, this earthquake and all of this. And very clearly, this is, this is what, whatever just happened was supernatural. And they draw the right conclusion. They might not understand all of the import of what they're saying, but they are right. Truly, this was the Son of God. They see all of the supernatural signs accompanying Jesus' death, and they understand that God had, is, is, uh, was involved with this. They understand that Jesus wasn't just some, some other human. He is divine. Again, they might not have all the right understanding of what that means, but they are confessing the right thing. What were the, uh, the, those bystanders around the cross mocking Jesus for? He claims to be the Son of God. He said, I'm the Son of God. And they're mocking him. But after all of this, uh, the Gentiles are drawing the right conclusion. This is the Son of God. This is the King. This is the divine Messiah. And Matthew highlights that in two levels. He highlights that this is the right response to who Jesus is in the midst of his death. Remember what we said? Matthew's at pains to show far from disqualifying Jesus to be the king. His death shows that he's the king. Well, he's highlighting the, the, the soldier's response saying they've got it right. They saw in the midst of Jesus' death that he's showing himself to be king. But he's also in ironically showing the Gentiles got it and the Jews didn't. 
but he's talking to a Jewish audience and he's saying, this is the response you ought to have. Claim Jesus to be the Messiah, the divine Messiah. Trust in his death. Follow him. And then we see witnesses to the event, verses 55 through 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is interesting. These are disciples of Jesus. And they're the last ones that Matthew portrays as being there. All the guys ran away. Peter's gone. The 12 are gone. But these women faithfully followed as Jesus' disciples, followed him from Galilee. They're at a distance from the cross, but they are witnessing this. There are three women named, three witnesses to these events. There was disciple witness to what was going on at the cross. These three will be mentioned again in connection with Jesus' burial and resurrection. They are the witnesses to what Jesus has done. What do we learn from this? Jesus died bearing the judgment for sin that his people deserved. Jesus was sinless so that his people's sins might be forgiven. Jesus never ceased trusting that his father would rescue and vindicate him, and he did. Those acts that the father did subsequent to Jesus' death, they vindicate what Jesus was doing. The vindication is still to come in his resurrection, but everything that was going on on the cross was planned to take place. The son was not separated from the father on the cross. The Trinity was not broken. Rather, the Trinity was working in perfect harmony to accomplish the atonement for Jesus' people. And he Father proved that, the events following Jesus' death. And as we've seen, entrance into God's presence in the future kingdom is possible through repentance, faith, and following Jesus. That's been the call of Matthew. What is the cost to, how do you get in on this? Let's put it that way. How do you get in on this? How do you get in on entering Eden in the new heavens and the new earth? First, repentance, which means what? Surrender. You lay down arms of living your own life and seeking to rule your own life as king. And you swear allegiance to Jesus, which is called faith. You trust him. You trust him for his death in your place, that it's going to purchase your resurrection, that it's going to purchase your entrance into the eternal kingdom. And Matthew also says, follow. You see, faith means you're going to be, have a faithful faith. A faithful faith that faithfully follows Jesus. Not perfectly, we see that with the disciples, but where you are fixated on Jesus and he is your king and you are going to live for him by his grace through the power of the spirit until you die. Jesus' death secured the hope of resurrection for his people, restoration for Israel, and restoration for the world. So what must you do? 
repentance, faith, confess him to be the son of God. You can say those words, but are you acknowledging him? Are you trusting him? Are you surrendered to him? And if so, then this passage should bring you great joy. Though it is dark, it is also this core of joy for us because we see what Jesus has done to purchase his people and to purchase for his people. Worship Jesus, proven to be the Son of God at his death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. You can only say this because the Scriptures say it. We thank you for crushing your Son. It says in Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Not that you took delight in targeting your son with your wrath, but it was your good pleasure to accomplish it for the glory of the son and for the salvation of your people. Jesus, you are at the right hand of the father as we speak. You rose again, you ascended on high, you are the one mediator between God and man, and we thank you for what you have done. We ask your forgiveness for even those of us who know you, our wobbling walk. Lord, we, we need to see you and to grasp what you have done. We pray, Spirit, that you would illuminate and show us what the Son has done, what, the tree, what all three of the persons have done to rescue a people and help us motivate our hearts to love and to allegiance to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Help us to live our lives in light of this reality. May we not live, leave unchanged. If there are any in this room who do not know you, draw them to yourself, crush their rebellion, and have mercy on them and show them the joy and the delight that you are and that you have purchased, Lord Jesus, on the cross. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand with me for a benediction from Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, you are sent.